Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Two weeks, two changes at the top, with both results following a nice, easy formula. Manchester team goes to North London. Manchester team loses by three goals in North London. Elsewhere, Jose Mourinho is left defending his job after Chelsea's brutal showing against Southampton, and the Merseyside derby provided no reprieve for this year's first managerial sacking, Brendan Rodgers. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll talk about Liverpool's managerial situation after the first break, but first, let's talk about the action on the field. We went to the weekend with the red side of Manchester enjoying its perch at the top of the Premier League. Now, thanks to Arsenal's 3-0 win Sunday over Manchester United, City is back on top of the Premier League. To talk about that, I'm joined, as always, by Lawrence McKenna and Kartik Krishnayar. And Lawrence, after a terrible midweek performance against Olympiacos, Arsenal not only knocked off the league leaders, but they're only two points back at the top, albeit after only eight games. So tell us what you took away from Arsenal's convincing performance on Sunday. Uh, stop looking at points. Um, second of all, what I would say is, um, with Arsenal, it totally depends on how the opposition manager very often approaches them. It can, you know, it can really change a game for those guys. Um, and Olympiacos approached it just right. A lot of Manchester United fans critical post-game about the way that Lou van Gaal approached the match. And I guess that, that makes perfect sense here because, you know, Arsene Wenger has been exploited tactically in other games, but not in this one. And then when they tried to change it up, by that point, I think the players just lacked the belief and imagination to be able to get behind from a 3-0 down, really. Mm. Kartik, what do you think? I think one point of view is that Manchester United had a poor 20 minutes. I don't think there's any disputing that. Arsenal jumped on them early, uh, rode that early lead throughout. Um, another point of view is that, yeah, Louis van Gaal got it wrong and Arsene Wenger was the beneficiary of it. Yeah, I think that that's, that's certainly right, that uh, van, van Gaal was a little bit uh, naive in his tactics. But look, we've seen Arsenal do this before and they flattered to deceive, right? We, we see these sorts of games against teams other than Chelsea. Right, I, I still go back to the fact that Arsenal is the one team that hasn't uh, scored two goals this season against Chelsea. They didn't create chances when they were 11 v 11. I know everyone's saying, oh, well, they finished on nine men. And then you see the first 20 minutes today, and you think, where was that? Why wasn't there that mm. kind of impetus when they played Chelsea, when they play in Champions League? 
It's a very confusing thing. And yes, on their day, Arsenal are the best team in this division. You look player for player, look at the combination of players, they're better than Manchester City. <laughs> they're better than Manchester United. They're probably better, they're better than Chelsea also, obviously. Yeah, I don't, but, I don't know. But, Kart- sometimes, Kartik, I think that you, you kind of... you. You're a little bit skeptical of your own team because I don't think that any team in this division has hit the heights that City did coming out of the gates this season. Well, well, that's true, but I think Arsenal have more quality depth once they get some guys back Mm. from injury. Now, of course, injuries are always issues with uh, with Arsenal, and City's injury record is already kind of taken uh, the the front foot, if you will, with uh, weighing them. But again, I mean, I think City are probably more reliable in big games than Arsenal are in, in spite of today's result. Uh, that having been said, I think uh, the combination play, Ozil, Ramsey, and Sanchez, was really good today uh, for when they needed to be the first 20, 25 minutes of the game. Hmm. Interesting. With Arsenal, Lawrence, it always becomes this discussion of how do you fit a good result, and this was undeniably a very good result, into context with the, the larger picture, the larger narrative surrounding not only Arsenal, but Arsene Wenger. Even last week on the show, we were talking about how the the win at Leicester City was so characteristic of Arsenal because, of course, they're going to push around a team that has a good record but really isn't one of the stronger sides in the division. And one thing that struck me about uh, this result in preparing for that is we can't really say that. We either have to say that Manchester United was a fraudulent leader at the top of the table. Again, don't look at the table so early. I'm, I don't want to give you an opportunity to say that again. Or we have to concede that the narrative around Arsenal isn't as ironclad as we made it seem last week. I guess so early on as well, um, it's probably silly for every season. Don't we find ourselves sort of getting sucked into this? Well, we'll make a blanket statement about someone and we want it to be able to fit it within this. Yeah, but we're saying these things about Arsenal not based on seven or eight matches. We're basing it on a couple decades of our well, watching, no, watching finger. Well, a decade now since the Invincibles. I mean, the Invincibles were, you know, a great side. Um, no, yeah, of course. But before but think- that, we remember, you know, we remember other different kinds of Arsenal. So we know how quickly things can change, but a lot of people are already sort of talking it. But I remember an Arsenal team that got an early season result at Old Trafford one year and then finished fourth and United ran away with the title. I remember an Arsenal team just two seasons ago that pushed Liverpool around, uh, around the same point in the season and were top of the table until Christmas. And guess what? Liverpool was in the title race and Arsenal wasn't. So I, I, we've seen these sorts of games before. This isn't the first time. Mm Mm-hmm. So, but Lawrence, it sounds like you might be a little bit more open to uh, to being convinced about Arsenal than maybe uh, maybe Car- I, Kartik well, I, There are huge elements that I'm convinced by, but then you see the Olympiacos game and you think, right. well, I guess the thing is, is, is I guess that this can't be the, the zenith of what um, Arsene Wenger is trying to implement at the club. But I'd also say seems like it's on the road towards that and definitely, you know, towards that. Mm-hmm. So if he's, if you know, it's never going to be, the problem is we want it to be complete or nothing. Yeah. Well, I and, think that's... And we, and we sort of go, you know, well, if, you know, if it's not complete, then it doesn't, it's not effective at all. And it is effective to some extent. I mean, you know, they were, you know, they, they, they score goals against Olympiacos and all those kind of things. So uh, it's just that there are holes in the construction. And as things go, you know, we're going to see that sort of evolve. The problem is whether that will mean they can get a title because basically it ill equips them to go a season long mm-hmm. it's beautiful for a few games but it, it doesn't equip them very well to be able to you know do well you know you use the metaphor on the road um implying that there's a progression here or um a destination and i think that's really the tension that you also alluded to you have results like this you have results like uh, what happened at leicester last weekend and then you have zagreb you have chelsea you have olympiacos 
Kartik, these results are just all over the map, not only in terms of the actual effect they have on the standings or uh, their potential in Champions League, but in terms of their actual performance. So there's the danger of us sitting here going, oh, 3 nothing against Manchester United, There's this is so telling, but... With this Arsenal team, it very well could be they come back after the break and they lose again in Champions League and they lose again in the league. It just seems like they're all over the place. Yeah, it started with them losing the opening night at home at the Emirates to West Ham. Then they beat a very good Palace team at Selhurst. It started the very first two weeks. And then they're the only team, as I said, that have not put Chelsea really under pressure this season when they were 11 v 11. Uh, yet they got the great result against Leicester, the good result against Palace that I mentioned. They beat Spurs uh, at White Hart Lane in, Le- in the League Cup, with Spurs playing more regulars than they were playing, than Arsenal was playing. And uh, obviously now this result. So I, I, it's... The, 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 the point, I think, is that Lawrence is, is, is implying that we're on... It's not... We're... we're, we're, we're looking at results when, uh, and we're not looking at like a glass half full or half empty scenario. It's all or nothing. But other teams have projects, right? And there's a progression you can view. Arsenal has had the same project now for year after year after year, and they're always finishing third or fourth in the league. Even with games like this, they had one or two of these types of matches against another top team every season where they look really good, they look rampant, they look in the mood, they look unstoppable. And so it's based on history and experience with this set of players. Because remember, this team has had more continuity than just about any other top team uh, in Europe uh, in, in, its, in the players they've had for a while now. Uh, it's just something that uh, – great performance today, but I'm not going to jump up and down and say, okay, they've arrived. They're going to win the title now. It, it just can't. So, guys, let's approach this from a different point of view because we have this podcast where we're trying to come here once a week and provide some context, analysis, opinion on the results that happen. But as we just discussed, Arsenal makes it so every week when we come here and say something about them, it's very likely to be disproved the next week, more so than other teams. So, Lawrence, I think you're probably the best person to answer this. Where does that leave us? Because it seems like it's impossible to have an intelligent conversation about any single possible. Okay. About any single intelligent conversation. Well, I guess it's it's possible to have an intelligent one, just not a very long one. Uh, yeah, although what you would say is let, let's unpack some of what we see at Arsenal. We see you know, a poor structure in the midfield, maybe a lack of personnel to be able to implement that there. Mm. But you do then think, well, Arsene Wenger has faith in those people to be able to do that. Um, in the back line, you'd say that they still lack a, a player there. In the front line, you'd say they probably still lack a player there as well. And I guess there's just... It, I mean, today we saw, you know, we saw him vindicated for Ryan Petacek because there are a lot of great things that happened for him in the game. Um, I, I, but... But I guess that's the problem is at the beginning of the season, we're looking for definitives. And I think it's still very much a work in progress or it's such a malleable thing. But but like Hartick said, this is a... Yeah, but like Hartick said, we're not just evaluating this this team on on eight games. But it's changed. It's it's not the same. I mean, we're not looking at... I think, you know, a few people have made this point now. We're not looking at the same Arsenal we were looking at a few years ago, the rough and tumble guys who also happened... Or that happened. the people who play beautiful football who also, in inverted commas, happened to be one of the roughest teams in the league. Hmm. You know, sorry, I have someone yelling next door to me because of the rugby, a sport that no one in the world gives a crap about. Um, but the point would be that uh, basically with this, we've got an evolving or a side that, you know, Arsene Wenger wants to work on and wants to take forward. And I think, you, you know, you do see that 
you do see that progress. And, it, it, you know, I, I see it season I, on season, but I still don't think it's a title-winning side. Yeah, Kartik, I, I, just, I just don't disagree. I don't see progress with Arsenal. I see a team that's very likely going to finish in the top four, very likely not going to really compete for a title in England. And if you want to talk about a progression, it seems like they're progressing in the wrong direction in Europe. Yeah, that's correct. Now, I, of course, wrote an article earlier this week at World Soccer Talk saying maybe the best thing after the Olympiacos game is to get out of the Champions League, finish fourth in the group, not be in Europa League, and then maybe then they they can push for the Premier League title because every season it seems like the same thing happens. They get to the round of 16. They get frustrated in Europe. Uh, they get knocked out of uh, the FA Cup around. Well, they've been winning the FA Cup recently, but they get knocked out of the League Cup. They lose the League Cup final or whatever. They lose in the League Cup, uh, uh, deep in the League Cup. And uh, their Premier League season goes uh, goes downhill. I remind you, two seasons ago, they spent about 180 days top of the table. Uh, Chelsea spent like 40 days. Liverpool, who finished second, spent like 20 days. And Man City, who won the league, spent like five days. Arsenal was leading that, that title race the entire season or m- much of the season, and they finished fourth. That's what happens every season. So that's the bottom line, is that maybe uh, Lawrence is saying this is different. We have to look at this eight-game sample or uh, ten games if you include the two Champions League games. But I don't see it that way because this is the same players. They've made fewer changes to their squad than any other top side in England, any other side in the top flight in England, any of the 20 teams we talk about here in the Premier League. Fewer changes to their squad the last three seasons than any of these other teams. And... Yes, the players are getting uh, older or getting more mature, the younger players that he's, uh, he's bet in. But the reality is it's still the same arsenal until prove, disproven. And again, I hate to keep coming back to this, and we're going to talk about Chelsea a lot later in this show. But the way they performed that first 45 minutes against Chelsea before the whole Costa-Gabriel blow-up and the way everyone else has played against Chelsea this season, even the teams Chelsea's beaten – like West Brom, that tells me something about Arsenal's mentality. Hmm. Well, it was a very informative result, potentially, or it could just be another uh, peak in Arsenal's peaks and troughs that we've been talking about. But it was only one of ten matches this week in the Premier League, a Premier League weekend that started on Saturday at Selhurst Park. Crystal Palace continued their strong start to the season, getting goals from Yannick Balassi and Johan Kambay in a 2-0 win over West Brom. Aston Villa increasingly looked like relegation fodder after a second-half goal from Mark Marco Antonovic gave Stoke City a 1-0 win at Villa Park. First half goals from Glenn Murray and Odin Agalu left Bournemouth and Watford drawn 1-1. Five goals from the previously struggling Cunaguero gave Manchester City a 6-1 win over visiting Newcastle. Leicester bounced back from last week's disappointment with a 2-1 win at Norwich City, while Sunderland played most of the second half down a man, gave up a two-goal lead to West Ham, and drew 2-2 in what was Dick Advocat's last game in charge. Chelsea, continuing a disastrous start to their title defense, fell to Southampton at Stamford Bridge 3-1, and on Sunday, Danny Ings. Romelu Lukaku scored first-half goals as Liverpool and Everton drew 1-1 at Goodison Park, while Christian Eriksen scored twice as Spurs took a point at Swansea. At the top of the league for the second week in a row, we have a new leader with Manchester City topping the table with 18 points. Arsenal and Manchester United are next with 16 points each, while Palace and Leicester have 15 points. At the bottom, Newcastle and Sunderland are the league's only winless teams, each with three points, while Villa is only one point better with four points from safety. When we come back, we're going to shift focus to Stamford Bridge and eventually to Merseyside, but let's take a moment to talk about Rabble.tv. At the top of the league for the second week in a row, we have a new leader, with Manchester City topping the table with 18 points. Arsenal and Manchester United are next with 16 points each, while Palace and Leicester both have 15. At the bottom, Newcastle and Sunderland are the league's only winless teams, each with 3 points, while Villa, only 1 point better, is 4 from safety. 
When we come back, we'll shift focus to Liverpool and eventually to Stamford Bridge, but let's take a moment to talk about Rabble.tv. You know, we're eight weeks into this season. The Premier League continues to deliver its entertainment on the field. But after two months of listening to the same voices call those games, maybe it's time to change things up. That's why I think you should check out Rabble.tv because it's a new way to augment that television experience. Rabble.tv is a place to listen to live match commentaries from real fans while games are being played. And it works really simply. All you have to do is mute your television after the game is on and then head over to Rabble.tv to listen to soccer fans providing their own commentaries. Or, even better, you can create your own broadcast and call one of your team's games just by signing up for free and switching on your microphone. You can listen to the broadcast on your desktop or through your iOS app, and now you can listen through your mobile browser, and you can send out the link to it and get all of your friends involved. Sign up today at Rabble.tv, where it's your team, and it can be your call. And on our team, we actually have somebody that uses Rabble.tv multiple times per week, and he has a show associated with World Soccer Talk called Divers and Cheats every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Kartik, how's Divers and Cheats going? It's going well. We didn't do a show this week because it conflicted with our NWSL final here in the United States, a women's league final, which was starting at 930 Eastern time. So there was no point in doing a show since our audience would all be, including myself, would be watching that game. So uh, but we'll be back this week at 9 p.m. Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern. I don't foresee any more conflicts like that the rest of uh, at least the rest of this calendar year. So another uh, show this week likely on a topic related to the FIFA scandal. Mm, FIFA scandal, that's heating up. Yeah, if I found a, if I signed a little bit tired this week, it's because the NWSL final was here in Portland, and uh, it, was, it was actually a really great event, probably surprisingly good, considering it was the first time they went to a neutral venue. The league's only three years old. Um, but everybody was in town, and there was a lot of celebrating on Thursday when FC Kansas City won their second straight title. A really great accomplishment for that organization. Um, gentlemen, let's talk about the big story this weekend, and we'll start with you, Lawrence, because it does affect the club that you call, uh, follow most closely. Brendan Rodgers, I suppose as expected, was fired. We didn't know exactly when that was going to happen after today's draw with Everton. The news came out. There had been rumors for a while that he needed to get seven points in these last three games. He didn't really come close to that. So just in general, your reaction to the news that Brendan Rodgers is no longer manager of Liverpool? Um. He had a good win ratio, um, but you'd say that a lot of that was probably affected. People, I guess people almost use his most successful season as a a stick to beat him with, which I find slightly unusual. Um, But at the same time, he made a rob for his own back, and very often it was was difficult to defend him, I think, um, and maybe ultimately it it caused his own downfall because people measured him by his own bar that he set, which is actually incredibly high, which I respected, because as a young manager... I think he should be setting that kind of bar. But I, I just think there's sometimes, uh, you know, because obviously from the press side, we sort of say, well, you know, it was his words that hung him. But you think, well, FSG are surely not reading the UK newspapers and saying, oh, well, we'll take our advice from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they'll be thinking from a very business oriented, winning oriented uh, standpoint, you'd hope as owners of the club, um, although maybe the Red Sox say different. Um, but I would say overall, it was that there was what would be the biggest indictment of the, this season of him as a manager is just the apathy towards Brendan Rodgers in the side. And it's kind of this, it's not like, oh, I'm excited to see this team. It's like, I'm kind of excited to see this team, I think. <laughs> um, and it was never like, a, oh, I can't wait for the game. It was like, a, oh, like you know, uh, the game's coming. Like, let's see how we play. Mm. And I just don't think that's what Liverpool fans wanted. Like they, you know, they suffered that somewhat under Rafa Benitez. 
Um, and there was, you know, there were obviously ups and downs and there was never really a consistent final from them. But it was sort of that what they wanted was someone that at least if they were going on that trip with them now, they felt like it was going somewhere. And in that one season for Liverpool, it felt like it was going somewhere. But now I think it's a consi- like it almost felt like a sort of a mediocre side to the side, you know, which I think that that's what annoyed most of Liverpool fans was they kind of sat not particularly feeling like they've made any progress in the off season, even though a lot of those signings would indicate that kind of progress. Now, I guess the biggest thing for him was also the theory of, Bre- of Brendan Rodgers versus the theory of Jurgen Klopp. You know, the two don't compare favourably if you're Brendan because, you know, rock and roll football is incredibly exciting and Liverpool fans want nothing more than to play exciting football and everyone else, and have everyone else go, yeah, you're my second team. And they'll go, yeah, yeah, brilliant. All right, cool. Yeah. Mm. All right, see you later. Bye. And that kind of, that that's, I think that has quite a big... Um, a big influence. It's no. It's nothing unusual that maybe the owners were here for it. Uh, would you have given him more time? I think I was always open to giving Brendan Rodgers more time um, because um, of, of what he'd done, and you know the fact that he did talk about a philosophy and instilling that, and the fact that Liverpool have begun to create more chances, etc. And that they didn't look terrible in this match. I mean, it, that's the unusual thing is it's almost, it doesn't feel like a results-based thing because he was sacked after a draw with your local rivals, and that's what I said before the match was. You know, if he draws or he loses, then it's kind of an unusual one because form in inverted commas goes out the window. So what are we basing that on? Mm. You know, do you give him a few more games after that? But I guess the biggest problem would be you almost don't want to sack him on that. Like you want to you want to you want him to leave on the idea that maybe he's taking Liverpool as far as he could and mm. he's maxing out now. And you know, we kind of saw that at Swansea too. So it's not it, it's almost nothing to be ashamed of, but it's like, you know, if you run out of ideas, you tend to leave a project. And maybe that's the problem is we see the club and all the success and stuff and people just draw the wrong kind of lines. If you've taken it as far as you can, then there's there's no shame in saying, I've kind of run out of ideas here. Like, maybe it's best that someone else steps in. Yeah. Um, the okay. problem being that people people think that someone else stepping in means a complete deconstruction and then a complete reconstruction, which maybe it does mean at a lot of clubs. Hmm. But in modern football, there are still going to be things that Brendan's done, like bring in Sturridge and Coutinho and Ibe and, you know, even getting the club to this level, getting them into the Champions League, you know, getting the best out of young players like Gomez when they first came to the club, bringing in Mignolet, um, making the team a fitter team um, and things like that, which, you know, I think will will probably stand him in good stead when Liverpool fans remember him as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the results are this year not terrible. 12 points, middle middle of the league, but not that far off the top or not that far off the European places, but the, the underlying data isn't as flattering. Uh, they have a neg- negative no, goal difference. Exactly. They're not generating a lot of great opportunities. They're giving up great opportunities in about the same ratio. They, the underlying data kind of suggests they're a middle-of-the-pack team, and obviously for a team that's invested as well, much as Liverpool. Uh, he spoke about luck today, though, I mean, after the game, and then spoke, I mean, really, the post-match conference, post-match yeah. comments don't really mean anything at this point, but he spoke about luck and you think, well, you're almost lucky to have this many points at this stage. Right. And um, it's always weird when a manager talks about luck because it's kind of an ignorant way to talk about just variance. And Well, yes, but then at the same time, I think something that we've always said, or I've always said, would be the, the harder you work, the luckier you are. But the problem would be that it's not just about hard work. It's hard work and it's velocity as opposed to speed. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And maybe at Liverpool, Brendan mistook speed for velocity mm-hmm. and you know, I think that that is, uh, is not not fantastic if you're a manager who's constantly thinking he's going in the right direction. Kartik, would you have given Brendan Rodgers more time? No, I, I think it was it was unfortunate that they spent so much money this summer with a manager that they weren't committed to. Now that's that's a maybe 
a FSG issue or a, a boardroom issue. But it was obvious for weeks he was dead man walking. I think really uh, after that West Ham game, the, the 3-0 defeat at Anfield, he was done for all intents and purposes. There was a lot of attacking talent bought that's been bought in the last two summers. And the integration of, of the side hasn't quite come together. I, I also think that... It, Quite frankly, a lot of people, and I talked about this with someone yesterday, actually, uh, offline, that a lot of people in the media, even though you look at Liverpool's point totals, they put in their head that that game against Bournemouth, the second match of the season, was actually uh, three points for Bournemouth. And, and because of the circumstances around Bournemouth's goal mm. being chopped off and, and then the Benteke goal that was clearly offside counting. So maybe that was the way it was being factored in also in the minds of uh, FSG that basically, okay, we, we're on 11 points or whatever, but we really should be on eight, and that, that would put us uh, near the bottom of the table. I do have to say, though, today was an odd time to do it. He leaves as Liverpool manager eight matches without losing to his local rival, Everton. Again, it was a, we can get into the match in a minute, but I was very disappointed by Everton and actually uh, liked what I saw from Liverpool a little more today than, than I than what we've seen to this point this season, either in Europe or in the league. So I was beginning But if we're going to gonna beat the... Arsenal with that stick, maybe we have to beat Liverpool with the same stick. Yeah. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought, I thought today uh, the combination of Ings and, Stur- and Sturridge worked very well together. And I, I felt like Emre Sean really uh, fit his role as an enforcer. Uh, so did uh, Lucas before he got pulled off with, with the potential second yellow coming. Uh, I, kind of like what I saw from Liverpool today, and I don't know if it was a, a performance they gave knowing that uh, the manager was gone. Uh, obviously, there, there's been a lot of speculation about that. Maybe the players knew. Or if they were genuinely beginning to turn the corner this season with this performance uh, and the win last week against Villa, and uh, now they're going to have to start over. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to make of it. The timing, I think Rodgers was dead man walking, just to summarize, but the timing is still a little odd for me. Hmm. Yeah, but I think people are always going to question the timing. But I, I mean, some people uh, decision, are saying decision must have been made before today. Is what I guess yeah. I'm saying. Well, I, I, I guess the decision. I, although you might say the decision was made to act if things went a certain way, mm-hmm. and so it was kind of they. You know, that's why we say dead man walking was because it, there was there, there was such an air of inevitability around this, wasn't there? Which yeah. you didn't want there to be. But the problem is, especially in a, a stadium like Anfield, it's not just a place where good feelings are amplified. To placing where, as a place where you know negativity is also amplified, right? But he didn't lose to Everton. That's that was my point. I mean, I could see if he had no. lost this match, the sacking captain. But they were the better team against the against the local rivals playing at home, who he's never lost to, who were in, ahead of Liverpool in the table, if I'm not mistaken, coming in, coming into today. Yeah, still are. Yes, but you would say you would say I guess that's the problem with Liverpool is that's not where they're aiming for, and so you know obviously that's a Correct. relative achievement. But where Liverpool are aiming, uh, the stupid thing here is that you know we're talking about the table in the first. I'm, I'm, that's not a dig at you, Karthik. I'm just saying you know the point would be we can't really talk about the table until we have a better position to judge from a small sample size right now. But the point still stands, I guess. You know, it, it's ridiculous that a different kind of decision wasn't made. I mean, they gave him all this money and then sack him so soon seems a little bit unusual. But I guess what that means is they believe that their investment was not necessarily just from Brendan. It was from, it was, you know, any manager could do well with that squad. And I guess that's the exciting thing when you think about Klopp paired with that squad. Yeah, let's talk about that in a second because I I mean this is coming this has come up a lot during the time that the three of us have been back together the idea of the table reflecting a small sample size and that's let's not look at it. There are reasons to look at the table. 
teams do try to win games and they try to be higher in the league than, than lower. So if they're lower, they're not accomplishing what they set out to do. And we can use that in our analysis. What, where it goes wrong looking at the table is when you look at the table with a small sample size and try to infer what a team is going to do in the, going forward. It is wrong to look at the table and see Chelsea at the bottom of the league and think that they are a bottom of the league quality team. However, they have performed consistent with that to this point. And to this point, Liverpool is not performing up to the expectations of the boardroom, of the people that have brought in those players, of Brendan Rodgers himself. So I think it is fair to look at the table and say, this reflects something. You look at the underlying numbers and say, okay, is it likely this team will improve in the future? And unfortunately, there isn't a lot of data to support that contention. So we're left here wondering who can come in and take over the job. And Lawrence, you mentioned Jurgen Klopp. That's the person that's most prominently linked with the position. We've also heard Carlo Ancelotti's name thrown out there. Uh, what do you think about those two? Uh, Carlo, I mean, I was evaluating this. Carlo Ancelotti, I think it would be an unusual decision for Liverpool just because of his style of management. doesn't mean he's not great. It's nothing to do with Liverpool thinking they're better, etc. It's just basically, um, you know, he's, apparently he's not laissez-faire, but sort of, I'm not going to be there for training. Do it. And then do well on the pitch. Whereas, you know, there's sort of um, a, a different approach from Klopp. And it just mm-hmm. seems that there's more synergy be- between what Klopp brings, not only the football which he aspires to, but also just, you know, the charisma and the, to use Brendan Rodgers' phrase, the character um, <laughs> of the man. Um, he's a top, 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 top manager. Although then there's, there's also questions over it. He's outstanding, you know, um, what he's done for this club. Um, and it's that, that's the weird thing, I guess, is that, um, you know, people, people put the question mark over Klopp's final season. At Dortmund, but you would say it'll be. It really would be interesting to see what happened if you mixed. I mean, just be, the weird. The weird thing that I've done is I've almost drawn out the Liverpool team and drawn out that Bavier Bay team and sort of gone, okay, Lewandowski, Benteke, um, you know, Coutinho, uh, Mkhitaryan, um, you know, Chan goes there, and you for that reason it's sort of quite exciting it's a different it's you know it's almost a different era of football because that style of football was found out but you still think even just for a short stint rock and roll football would be incredibly exciting at liverpool yeah Kartik, i want to get your uh thoughts on klopp also but i i do have some thoughts on klopp that um that i i think it's a really poor fit for the personnel that liverpool have right now uh, when you have a coach that is so committing committed to the style of pressing that we that was so successful there and we see at bayern and barcelona and you match that up to the strengths and the qualities of the main people at Liverpool. You wonder how good workers like Henderson and Milner would perform in a system where the players in the middle of the park are always going to be expected to technically execute in tight spaces. You wonder how somebody like Felipe Cacchino is going to uh, perform in a system where how he how he reacts the moment the opposition gets the ball is as important as how he reacts the moment that he gets the ball. You wonder how somebody like Christian Benteke is going to be executing that press from the top. But you also see other players like I think Nathaniel Klein would be a great fit for the system, having that wing opened up and having his qualities as a, as somebody that plays in the middle of the park as important as the qualities at the uh, defensive third. And I think Daniel Sturridge is almost if he can stay healthy, like a prototypical number nine you would want in that scheme. So I think it's a weird fit. I think it would start a whole rebuild of the squad again. And the question I have is whether Liverpool is actually in a position where that is a good thing to basically say, this year is lost, and if if we don't treat it as a lost year, we might make Europe, but we won't make the changes that we need to make. We're going to bring Jurgen Klopp in. This next six months are going to be 
a period of time where we can evaluate the squad, implement his system, and we're going to be ready for next year. Kartik, what are your thoughts on Klopp? That's, uh, I think you've laid it out. You've essentially said what a, a lot of what I was going to say. I'm kind of torn here. Is this, because the sacking appeared to have been made before this result, which I think is a, a decent result for Liverpool. If he had lost to Everton, I could see him getting sacked. Uh, but that leads me to believe that they have a replacement in mind to, to put in in this two-week period of the international break, which very well could be Jurgen Klopp. But I thought about yesterday uh, when I was talking to somebody about Rodgers getting sacked about exactly what you laid out, that Klopp's style doesn't fit, particularly the two players you mentioned, Henderson and Milner, that are critical to this Liverpool team. They couldn't play in that kind of high-tempo, high-pressing style. And I think you're, you're, you're in this position where some of the personnel that Klopp would inherit at Liverpool would be more useful than the other personnel uh, that he inherits, and some of the better personnel he inherits would be less useful to him. That's point one. Point two is he's going to want complete control over transfers, which you don't have at Liverpool, and and he did have at Dortmund. Uh, Point three, I think, is do you just ride out the season with a caretaker of some sort Mm. uh, and then see what happens with – uh, some other potential manager that you could bring in. Because here, here's the thing, uh, and, and maybe this is a good appropriate time for this discussion. I've noticed there are fewer and fewer good number twos at Premier League clubs who could take over a team. I think maybe the last time we saw such a uh, such a thing happen was Roberto Di Matteo, who had his own management experience uh, in the Premier League at West Brom and had been, of course, a great Chelsea player as AVB's number two, and that made AVB sacking very simple for, for – uh, Chelsea when they wanted to do it but it, it's one of these things now where you're seeing number twos who cannot step up to that number one job so you're, there's now almost a market guys for a caretaker manager that can take over the way Rafa Benitez did and saw off that season with Chelsea and they did okay right they got they won the Europa League and they, they did okay in the league under him uh, there's almost a market for that kind of manager that can calm a club just glide it through the rest of the season when things aren't doing well and then you turn the page Maybe that's where Liverpool goes, and if that's where Liverpool goes and they're looking at uh, long-term replacements this summer, uh, this coming summer, Carlo Ancelotti won't be on the list in that case, and I don't really know where they go at this point. But if they're going to make a long-term appointment now, it might very well be Jurgen Klopp. But if they're going to go, uh, let's ride out the rest of the season and then uh, rethink next summer, then it's probably not going to be Klopp. Hmm. I don't think they have the the time or inclination to be able to ride out the rest of the season. Yeah. I think there's players within that squad that will kind of say, well, you know, Coutinho uh, being one of them, uh, I just can't wait. You know, we, we need we need a manager in to show the intention of the club, I guess. Hmm. Um, it, and it is, I, it, I mean, that's part of it. It is such a long time in modern football to basically throw away a year. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where they go. Do they just stick with a caretaker and do the best they can this year, or do they start the transition that they seem to be implying that they need? Do they start that now? Uh, Is there someone within English football that they could they could grab? I mean, could they grab an Eddie Howe? He's very attached to Bournemouth. His one foray out to Burnley didn't go well, but that would be a guy, if you're ambitious, you could grab, or do they need an established continental name? And if they do, there's a very short list of guys. Angelotti would be at the top of that list, and I don't know that he's necessarily the guy for them. Well, the world in which Liverpool can't get Eddie Howe is not a world that we've ever seen. But isn't it? Well, that's a weird one, isn't it? Because it's sort of like saying, well, let's go for Eddie Howe. Wait a minute. Didn't we just have a manager like Eddie yeah. Howe? I mean, if you have, somebody, if you have somebody like Jurgen Klopp, and this is the other thing, Lawrence, Lawrence alluded to this. This is the other part of the 
Jurgen Klopp equation that I find weird. Jurgen Klopp is a man for two different teams in Germany, had seven-year stints where he dramatically improved their fortunes. Mainz has been a steady uh, team in the Bundesliga after he took over, after his playing days were over. And then Dortmund hadn't been in Europe for four years before Klopp arrived. They were in 13th place the year before Klopp arrived. They had relegation issues. And Klopp took them to the final of Champions League. He took them to two straight titles in the Bundesliga. And we're now seeing how difficult it is to win the Bundesliga from this version of Bayern Munich. And to look at Klopp's last year at Dortmund, when, just like we're talking about with Liverpool, the underlying numbers don't reflect a good team, the underlying numbers for Dortmund last year reflected a good team that just had bad results that improved throughout the season. And to indict him based on that, I think, is a really, really short-sighted. And the reason I bring all this up is, when you have a chance to get Jurgen Klopp, you get Jurgen Klopp if you're Liverpool. If you are a team that is not a consistent Champions League team, and somebody like Jurgen Klopp, based on his personal preferences and what he likes in clubs, what he, he likes, the, he wants a club that is a project right now, but he also wants one with a loyal, a loyal follow, following, some passion behind it. It is a perfect fit. And so for Liverpool to talk themselves out of that, which I, I don't think they're doing, but if they were to talk themselves out of that, it would be very, very foolish in my mind. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, that's the thing. We don't know. We don't know what they're, th- what they're talking. Hmm. Well, we're talking a lot about Jurgen Klopp. Let's go ahead and take our first foray into Europe in the show. Talk about Germany, where one of the biggest games of the weekend took place between the two biggest clubs in Germany. But a dominant performance by what at the moment is the best team in the world. Saw Bayern route second place Dortmund 5-1. Two goals from Thomas Mueller, another pair from Robert Lewandowski, as well as an insurance tally from Mario Goza gave FCB a seven-point lead at the top of the Bundesliga. And while a lot of people are going to roll their eyes at the result and say typical Bayern, typical Dortmund, Dortmund was undefeated before that game. Bayern is just that good right now. In Italy, Fiorentina, leaders coming into the weekend, were kicking off against Atalanta at the time of this recording. But Inter, the team that was knocked off of Serie A's perch last weekend, had temporarily reclaimed that spot after a 1-1 draw at Sampdoria. Juve got a 3-1 win over visiting Bologna to climb to 12th, and wins by Lazio and Roma have those two rivals in the top four. But let's go back to Germany for a second. Kartik, we've talked about it every weekend, about the excitement of a potential title contending Dortmund and what that meant for the Bundesliga. It seems pretty clear at this point, seven points back, first loss of the season, the gap we saw today between them and Bayern, they're not going to contend for this year's title. Yeah, I, I was a little unhappy that Alaba didn't get sent off uh, on that foul on Aubameyang and it- about the third or fourth minute, but it was one-way traffic for much of the game, and, and uh, Dortmund were very open. Uh, maybe you could say they were naive today. Uh, that's Tuchel, who's kind of a, he followed uh, Klopp at Mainz. He followed Klopp. Uh, well, he came. Uh, well, there was a manager in between him and Klopp at Mainz, but then he fo- he's now followed Klopp at at Dortmund. Since we talk so much about Klopp, but that was a uh, there was maybe a little bit of naivety to, to the pressing and to uh, the openness of the Dortmund midfield, but they just got. Uh, slid open. And I have to tell you, if I'm Republic of Ireland or I'm Scotland, since we have a lot of fans, fans of those two nations, people from those nations who listen to this uh, podcast, and Lawrence and I count ourselves among the Republic of Ireland supporters, I think, in, in, in some regards, I'd be <laughs> yeah, scared. Yes, although sometimes I do, I do throw my weight behind Northern Ireland from time to time, just especially as they've done so well in this quarter. Yeah, I know. I want, to see, I want to see Northern Ireland qualify, and I'm, I'm looking forward to them getting uh, the results they need in, in these final two qualifiers. That was a gutty... 
Gotti come back against Hungary. But uh, that's you, where we're conflicted, though, right? Because you want to see Scotland go, but you also want to see the Republic go. Right. But my <laughs> point was that Robert Lewandowski is on an absolute tear. He's on an absolute rampage at this point. And those are the two opponents for Poland. Now, the good news is that Republic of Ireland and Scotland are competing with one another. So one of them will make the uh, playoff uh, in third. I guess maybe it's damage limitation when you play Poland. Uh, although I think Scotland really needs to win that game. And it's, Lewandowski in this mood, I don't know. Um, I've lost. But they have to win both. Like if they don't win both, and then other results go their way, then they're out. Okay, so they're they're probably not going to qualify. But Lewandowski at this point is he the best striker in Europe? Probably is he the best player right now with Messi injured? Uh, I mean, you look at Cristiano. There are moments. There are moments in time when we get into this debate. Okay, over long term, it's Messi, Ronaldo. No question about that. But there have been snapshots in time where Ibra has been the best player in the world. There are snapshots in time where Luis Suarez has been the best player in the world. Mm-hmm. Neymar. Are we in that moment right now with Robert Lewandowski? Maybe. Yeah, I was wondering that today because as we started recording, Karim Benzema, <laughs> Karim Benzema had, had put uh, Real Madrid ahead at uh, Atleti. And Benzema has been their best player this year. And I think we take him for granted because he's not this this physical force that his partner Ronaldo is there but he's really having a moment too right now as Ronaldo some of the uh, age is starting to show on Ronaldo and they yeah. see that they can rely on Benzema more with Bale out and Rodriguez out it's really has been he's been Mr. Reliable for them um, yeah I think I think it's a I think it's a really interesting discussion um, kind of one that leads naturally into our players of the week I'm gonna go ahead and fall on this sword and uh I'm going to take the obvious one. Sergio Aguero had five goals against Newcastle. What a fall. Yeah. What a fall you took, Richard. Thanks for <laughs> falling on that sword. So I'm going to go ahead and go with Sergio Aguero and let you guys have the more interesting picks. Um, Kartik. Saito Mane. I thought he was fantastic in uh, Southampton's 3-1 win at the bridge. We saw precisely why... Uh, why I was going to say Ronald Koeman. Ronald Koeman's adversary, Louis van Gaal. Of course, we know they don't get along. Both former uh, Barca men, uh, Dutch uh, Dutchmen. Uh, they don't. They don't get along. And we saw exactly why van Gaal wanted Mane in this game. He was running the show, yeah. running the channels. Great with the ball at his feet. He usually played the right pass when they were in the counter attack. Weighted his balls perfectly. Just really all around classy performance. Yeah, and Southampton were so impressive coming out of halftime on Saturday. And a lot of that is Chelsea. Chelsea really got exposed as the slow, methodical team at the back that they sometimes can be. But uh, Southampton was very impressive uh, recovering from... William, William from the uh, dead balls seemed to be Chelsea's only attack at this point. Um, Lawrence, your player of the week. Good question. Uh, honorable mentions, obviously, must go to the likes of Vardy. Uh, and maybe even uh, Redmond up front for Norwich because I thought he had a good game despite you know uh, losing in the end. Uh, I'd also like to mention Jan and Villa, um, despite <laughs> them losing their manager this weekend, obviously. Uh, my player of the weekend is going to be... It's going to have to be Sanchez for me. Hmm. Uh, you know, fantastic, aggressive for me. He sums up everything. He's almost like the Premier League, but in, you know, in a nutshell. Um, he's, he's very... He's small, he's compact, he's aggressive, um, but in a very graceful way. And, you know, it, it's people, when he first came up, people were like, oh, you know, he'll be the next Luis Suarez. I think he's graceful in a very different way to the way that Suarez was um, and impactful. And, and the, also the sense that he, you can't really leave him in the space that he likes to be, but it's very difficult to man mark him. So it's very hard to take Sanchez out of a game. 
and he's kind of having a moment right now, which I just love. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Another player that, like Lewandowski, is having a moment, maybe not quite as bright, but certainly one that's of note. Uh, let's shift topics, gentlemen, to the other big story, another managerial story this weekend. Brendan Rodgers, I guess, technically won the sack race because Dick Advocat resigned from his position at Sunderland today. Uh, on Are they Sunday paying also. out on that? What would they pay out on? Which manager to go first or which manager to get sacked? I guess it's how you make the belt, right? But hmm, Yeah. Carter, do you know the answer to that question? If Who wins? Uh, is is Advocat wow. considered the, the winner of the sack race even though he wasn't sacked? I think it's Rodgers because he was sacked. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, that, that seems like you'd have to pay out on that or else the bet becomes less about bad performances and more about managerial predilections. Um, but we're down we're down two managers at this at this point, two teams that are making the transition. But uh, perhaps the most intriguing coaching position in the league is the one at Stamford Bridge. After Saturday's loss to Southampton, Chelsea manager Jose Mourinho gave um, just a meandering soliloquy after the game as part of his post-match comments. Uh, one that ended in a defense of his job saying that if Chelsea sacked him, they would be sacking the best manager in the club's history. So, Kartik, uh, Jose Mourinho obviously up for talking about his job. He brought it up. Let's, uh, let's take advantage of the moment. Where do we start with Jose Mourinho, his job, his security at, at Stamford Bridge? Well, his job security should be uh, zero right now, and and I think uh, he, he he trying to use again the media the the, the media in England has been his great um, enabler through the years, trying to use the media to, to to bully Roman Abramovich. Basically, that seven minute diatribe was: you want to sack me? You want you, you really want to sack me? Uh, here, here's what you're dealing with, and it was uh, a narcissistic rant. Uh, the likes of which we have not seen. Well, we, we've seen him because we've seen him from Jose, right? But you don't see him from other other managers. And uh, Jose has uh, has has done something outrageous every single week this season since the start of the season, starting with the Eva Canario uh, situation, uh, right on through that rant, uh, goading Arsene Wenger constantly. Uh, just he he has is consistently making this about himself, and then his. Uh, uh, he dared the FA to suspend him because he was uh, getting after the officials. Although uh, the the funny thing is that the, the clear cut penalty that was missed in this game was when uh, Mane got taken down in the area, right? Right. So Southampton had a clear cut penalty. The Falcao one a little more ambiguous. Um, I thought maybe it should have been a penalty, but a lot of people disagreed with me on it. So yeah. I, I'm open to the discussion of that. But Mourinho is uh, is a narcissist. We've said this for years. He has to get. Uh, he has to be the center of attention. His team is performing not just below their level, but they've now lost twice at, at the bridge this season. They drew a game to Swansea. The only only uh, result they have, the only good result they have at the bridge was that game against Arsenal where they were uh, up a man for 45 minutes and mm-hmm. up for two men for, seven, for about 15 minutes. And uh, it, it is incredible to see the sagging spirit of a club that was always so united and would always rally. And I have to think, and I'm throwing out a theory here now, and I know this is might, might might ruffle some feathers. I have to think how he handled the medical staff and Eva Canero and, and her assistant, whose name eludes me. Uh, I, I think that may have had an impact on the players because the players, Chelsea, like every uh, big club, has uh, a lot of big players who get injured, who are playing so many games. Remember, Oscar had to play 70 games a couple of seasons ago because they were in all these different competitions. So they spent a lot of time in the physio room. And I think... That might have broken the spirit of some of the players. Uh, Hazard uh, clearly wanted medical attention when he went down, right? And she ran onto the pitch. 
JT is the captain of the, of the side. He's been this Mourinho stalwart. In fact, I think so much of his behavior on the pitch, demonstrative behavior on the pitch for the last decade, uh, as Chelsea's captain and as England's captain for part of that period, came directly from Jose Mourinho, was imparted in him by Jose Mourinho. He now suddenly seems to have had a falling out with Jose. I have to think the physio situation was a trigger on all of this. Uh, it's just a theory, but we've se- we're seeing players essentially quit. Very seasoned professional players who have played for multiple managers, have played like professionals for multiple managers, kind of quit uh, in-, in the midst of games uh, as Mourinho goes rants and-, and calls them all out in press conferences. So uh, I think it's a bad moment. He has to be sacked. I think that's uh, Aldricott stepping down. Uh, is, 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 you know, a 50-50 thing for me, flip of a coin. We talked about Rodgers. I'm not sure. I think he was a dead man walking. I'm not sure this is the right time. Mourinho has to be sacked, in my, in my opinion. He has to go. The, the rant at the end of the game just reminded me of something you would have seen, like, in the movie Office Space. Or I, I started thinking of Edward Norton in Fight Club going into his boss's office and beating himself up so that he could leave his job. <laughs> I mean, this, this is the act of somebody who has imagined the final act of his position and isn't waiting around for that act to finally start. He is defending his job as if he's already being told he's going to be fired. Uh, And if I'm an owner and I see somebody's mind is already drifting away from the job, maybe that ends up making the decision for me. Lawrence, what do you think? What do you think about the whole Jose Mourinho situation? Farcical sort of, we we end up again being distracted from the actual result, but I guess that's almost feels, feels by the by, doesn't it? At this point, um, I think one thing I would notice is that does open up the top four yes. um, to the likes of someone like Spurs or maybe even Liverpool if they feel like they're still within the points which they are. Um, although you'd say it takes time to transition with a new manager, um, it, they did say. And in fact, there was an interesting article. I think it was by Dan. I'll I'll look it up on on uh, the Guardian, but basically it was on the Guardian. It was saying looks as if players have let, lost somewhat of the faith in Mourinho, like Carter was alluding to. But one thing that he did unpack was the idea that if, you know if, if John Terry can go and you know a couple of other people who are close to Mourinho almost haven't feel like they're stabbed in the back a little bit by Mourinho, then what's going to happen to me? Like, am I you know am I next one for the job? How do I protect myself? You know, do I put in a solid performance or do I put in a performance which is you know, over-exaggerating. And at times in the past, Mourinho's had people who respond to that drama very well. But this group of players don't seem to be responding to the drama very well at all. Mm. And, you know, it's it's a play of the dice, really. Like, you know, it's a final throw of the dice for him. And, you know, the final throw threw up not such good not such good uh, numbers. They didn't combine. And, he, you know, this bet's not going particularly well. I think it's becoming clearer game by game that something that we have started talking about in the last few weeks is is probably something that needs to be said whenever we're talking about Mourinho. Uh, This is a team that he inherited two years ago that was on the verge of being broken up. Uh, The results were waning. That was the year that they dropped down in the Europa League. They brought in Rafa Benitez at the end of the season. And the core, this what's going to be a legendary core of players at Chelsea, just looked like it had passed. And Mourinho, I guess you can argue, almost did a disservice in a way. Um, to Chelsea's long-term plans. It's hard to say it's a disservice when you win a title, but he got a couple more years out of that core with just a, with a two or three key acquisitions. And now they're at the point where Mourinho is being judged against those accomplishments without really the discussion of the fact that this team probably needs to be broken broken up and built back up with the youth that they have or with some other purchases. 
And Kartik, I think when Chelsea is making this decision about whether to let Mourinho go, they really need to ask themselves, who do they want in charge of that rebuild? And if the answer for that is Jose Mourinho, they can look at this as like, you're doing a bad job with this current situation, but we're going to change the situation because eventually we're going to have to do that anyway. Yeah. I, look, they've got some players that are part of that core that have played for uh, an incredible amount of managers. Ramirez is in his sixth season at Chelsea now. He's played for five managers. Uh, so this is uh, the sort of it's the sort of thing where I, I think the players are accustomed to managers coming and going. Also, uh, Mourinho uh, may think he has a birthright to that job, and he and he created Chelsea. Obviously, Wenger took a dig at him last week, saying no, it was Ranieri who really built this team. Uh, <laughs> which that was, of course, that set Mourinho off. Of course, talk, talk, talking about how Wenger was the king and all of this. Uh, again, another sideshow. Uh, which distracted from uh, a poor Chelsea performance uh, against Newcastle, but they, they, they have to make a concerted decision now. Do they want to blow this thing up and rebuild, and and do it in a methodical fashion with a younger manager that has a philosophy? Do they think Jose's the guy to do that? Because Jose's never a long term solution for a job. He's never been in his career. Uh, but is he serious about this being his club and his love, English football and Chelsea and, and wanting to go through this again? Uh, then maybe they have to clear, clear the decks in January and, and this summer and just ride it out this season. Or do they do they do the same thing as they did with Benitez, caretaker, and then they go uh, looking for someone this summer? The other thing that needs to be brought up here is the way Jose's behaving. And you, you, you great uh, analogy with the Edward Norton movie. Uh, he, that was like a desperate nuclear final act of a narcissist who's looking for attention uh, and, and just the, the, the kind of going nuclear reaction. Do other big clubs, because Mourinho doesn't manage uh, non-big clubs. He's not like Ranieri who'll go manage Leicester City, even though Ranieri had a track record of just going to big clubs before Leicester. Uh, he only manages big clubs. Do the likes of uh, Bayern, uh, Real Madrid would never touch him again, but the likes of the Bayern, Barcelona's, uh, Inter's, Juventus's, they see this uh, Manchester United, Manchester City, they see this sort of behavior. Is there a chance he get, doesn't get another one, another sniff at a job like that when he leaves Chelsea? Uh, maybe PSG would take him, but that, that's the only one I can think of that yeah, might tolerate this sort of behavior. A, people see it as a bit of a kickstart, though, don't they? I mean, you know, they'll look at the Chelsea model and they say, well, you know, Mourinho built that side. He bought a load of great players. He attracted a load of egos along to the club. And then all those managers did well after him. You know, there, there was a lot of success. So in keep, keep, keep mean, him for two years, basically? Is the yeah, basically keep, keep him for two years, beginning, begin to build something. Um, you know, people are almost wise to that. So like we say, it's post Mariniism or whatever it is. And, <laughs> you know, it, then you bring in other people and there's this sense of also relief. Oh, thank God all that, that, um, pressure's gone. Thank God all the, the you know, the, the drama that we had around the club. There's a couple of players who he's been built up by. And yeah, I think it works for a lot of clubs as well. I mean, you know, other managers have had success post Mourinho. You know, Ancelotti won the Champions League not long after he left and, you know, it, it wasn't, it, it, had they not had the terrible turmoil at Inter, then it maybe would have been a different situation. Hmm. I think there, there are two clubs that immediately come to mind uh, when we think about the future for Mourinho. One is because of Mourinho's apparent affinity, borderline obsession with the job, and that's Manchester United. I just don't see that happening. Uh, I could see a scenario where, from Mourinho's point of view, he loses his job at Chelsea, spends a year in the, in the media being an on-camera person, and hopefully he's the person that takes over for Louis van Hall. And I just don't see Manchester United doing that. Uh, the other one, I mean, you look at the big clubs around Europe that 
Jose hasn't been with and have the statures that he wanted, it would be Juventus and the moment that they're having with Max Allegri now and the success that Jose had when he was with Inter. There's a bit of a personality clash there, but it seems like a fit. And the only other possibility that I really think of is if Jose goes back to Portugal and basically takes a job at one of the big three clubs, whichever the big uh, one finishes lowest in the table because they invariably change their managers when they do that. So those are the, those are the possibilities, I think. But Kartik, I... I do think that the list is getting very, very narrow, and it would take a special set of circumstances. And the Real Madrid opportunity that he got, which was really just a club that was had a strong, strong team and just wanted that little bit of a push, I think he's going to have to go lower and go towards a club that is uh, has decidedly taken taken a step back. Right. Yeah. The Real Madrid situation was one where he was available. They had decided, uh, even though Pellegrini had a really good season, they had, the Pellegrini didn't. Uh, uh, see eye to eye with Florentino Perez, and uh, this was Real Madrid trying to get one over on Barcelona, right? I mean, he he's no one irritates Barca as much as uh, and irritates Pep as much as Jose, so uh, they did it. But I look at Chelsea now, where we've talked about Jose's, uh, and I, I agree with you, the list is very short of where he can go. Look at Chelsea's situation. If Roman has not patched things up with Carlo Ancelotti, he probably should, because I could see Ancelotti coming into this game. Yeah, I could see Ancelotti coming back into this side, calming things down, and Chelsea finishing in the top four. Still, yeah, yeah he'd, he'd, I absolutely can. Yeah, uh, for a team that's lacking confidence after what Mourinho has done to him, that he'd be just the perfect hire. Um, and you know, Mourinho, they still have a, a core of talent that could finish in the top four. I think we're seeing a lot of cracks in the talent. I, every time we watch Chelsea, guys, it's it's the same questions that go through people's minds. Why is Branislav Ivanovic even playing? Why is Cesc Fabregas seemingly an obligatory starter? Uh, we're talking about times when even in Hazard now is maybe, yeah. maybe that's just rotation. You, you never really know. But obviously, everybody's job has to be questioned, Lawrence. And I think that, for me, is the thing that I wonder what's going on with Mourinho because there are these players that are performing so incredibly poorly. And they're still getting uh, spots in the starting 11, Ivanovic and Fabregas specifically. And I wonder if that's just Jose Mourinho's pride just being his undoing and him saying, these are really the best players that I have for these positions. I am going to play these players. I know better than you. And we're not losing because of them when everybody else is looking and saying, you are losing because of Bronislav Ivanovic. Well, I guess yeah. to some extent people believe that. Um, but could, could you also say, though... <sighs> I guess it's sort of, it, I mean, you know, when we're evaluating players like this, then it always seems, it always makes sense to kind of say, well, you know, could you, could you get someone better? Could you do this? Could you do that? Uh, there is a chance he's right. Abs- well, absolutely. But there's, it, I, I suppose there is a chance he's right. But Kartik, it seems very unlikely because we are familiar with some of the replacements that would be there for Cesc Fabregas, whether it's Mc, uh, John O'Wee McKell or moving Ramirez in there or even moving Oscar back into a, yeah, a, a right. deeper role. And we are familiar with the options that have been brought in recently there. And I think Lawrence is right. And even when I'm saying this, you know, Jose Mourinho does know more about those players than we do. But we also know enough to know that those players are drastically underperforming. Right. So the Ivanovic thing and Fabregas thing, I want to separate. Ivanovic, I think it's a bit of a necessity. I, I had a theory that if they got John Stones, he was going to play. He had played right back previously. Remember when uh, Everton bought him from, from Barnsley and Martinez made him into a center back. Moyes had him as a right back that maybe he was going to play right back and, and see out the season. They didn't get Stones. I, I think they there's not that much confidence in, 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 in uh, Baba Raman yet, who they bought from Augsburg. They've got the 
possibility of playing Asapolo Cueta at right back and, and Raman at right, left back. But I think it's it's a tough one. Now, with the Fabregas situation, Fabregas has been one of and I'm not this is not hyperbole here. This is just a hot take. He's been one of the one of the worst players in the Premier League this season that I've watched. It's hard to believe we're saying that about Cesc Fabregas. He's not just one of the big, worst players at a big club. He's one of the worst players I've watched this season consistently. Uh, yes, they could put Ramirez there. They could slide him into that role. Uh, and I think Ramirez actually fits that role very well. They could drop Oscar back. That might not be as clean a fit. Maybe you play a double shield, Matic and um, and uh, Mikel. There, there uh, is also the possibility, and Mourinho has alluded to it, of bloodletting uh, Loftus-Cheek a little more, mm-hmm. uh, the, the youngster. So yeah. there are options. To me, it is mind-boggling that Fabregas has continued to be essentially the first name on the team sheet uh, besides uh, a guy like Hazard and Costa when he's not suspended. I mean, it's, it's stunning because Fabregas, this might also be about this whole Wenger thing because Fabregas, obviously Wenger passed on bringing him back to Arsenal. That is now looking like a smarter and smarter move. And there is, Mourinho is so into this Wenger thing and baiting <laughs> Wenger that I wonder if that might be a motivation. It's not something we would attribute to another manager and say, oh, yeah, a mind game is a motivation for continuing to, to, to play an inadequate guy in your first 11 every week. But with Mourinho, who knows? He does bizarre things. Hmm. Well, can I, can I also say that I think this is partly about um, it's not only a Mourinho thing. And I think the biggest problem is that we're making it about Mourinho and we're not, we're not going for the wider context almost. Um, because everyone's like, well, you know, should, should he be sacked? There is an incredible amount of decadence in the Premier League. And, you know, Kartik's been flagging this for years. You know, our coefficient's going down. Um, you know, we're spending so much money within the league. Everyone else is investing here. Everyone else is investing there. And I think players aren't, I mean, players to some extent are in a bubble, but they know about other leagues. And there's almost like a players union. You know, they know when other people win and they text each other and they, they know about the cultures at other clubs. Maybe not as well as you would like to know, or, you know, like in the same way you work at, uh, one blog I don't know anything about the culture at that blog I know about the culture in England but players know when things are trendy and you know what other projects are like and I do imagine that there are players who have come from other cultures such as Fabregas a number of other Chelsea players with a lot of experience and they come to the money and it becomes so ubiquitous within their lives and it is currently so ubiquitous within football they could go to so many clubs Juventus Chelsea uh, Man City, Barcelona, Real Madrid, all these clubs where they could be paid a great wage and they could win things. And you think at that point, and it's almost being demonized now, it's almost, it almost becomes like, well, okay, well, you spent your money, you've won the league, now what? And, you know, we see a lot of celebrities go for Scientology and those kind of things to try and fill the gap. I think some players lose motivation because they, they sort of think, well, what, what is there left to achieve now? Mm. And then they sort of look back and they think, well, actually, it's to play good football and not be stressed while playing football. And it's to play under a manager that I enjoy. And it's to play as part of a bigger project. And a lot of people sell the Dortmund players in on that. And then City come along and they go, but no, wait a minute, money rules all. So, you know, this is a free market and the money will sort things out. But actually, that's not always the case. And it's just that we live in this bubble of, well, the money will sort it or the market will sort it or it'll all play out. And we think it does. So therefore, we, you know, we assume all that is given. But I don't think it is. And I think it plays a huge part at Chelsea right now. The players are unhappy. And, you know, there's also a huge amount of money floating around at that club. And it's not necessarily always going to be the best cocktail. Kartik. Sorry, uh, that was rant, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> but 
it does it's true. It, well, it does provide a needed some needed perspective, and it probably highlights the the dangers of breaking up the leadership structure of that club. Because when you have highly motivated players who have proven over the years that they're able to transcend that money issue and that complacency issue, then taking them out of the structure of the team becomes more perilous. Kartik, international break is upon us. When we come back from it. Is Jose Mourinho the manager of Chelsea? I tend to think no, uh, but it may depend entirely on the scenario we laid out because Ancelotti is the, is the clear guy that could take this job and fix it, fix the team right now. But he has already been sacked once, sacked in the tunnel at Goodison Park, remember, by Roman's henchmen uh, when he was sacked at the end of the 10-11 uh, season when Chelsea failed to win the title that season, even though they pushed United. So... Uh, if that's not patched up, maybe he will be. I mean, I can't, but it's not going to end well, right? He's going to get sacked at some point this season. He's not going to be the manager next year at this time. There's no way. Uh, so I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they do it now and they just go with another caretaker. Uh, who knows? Lawrence? Is, it the ne- is the inevitability flown over to Chelsea at this point? <laughs> the, yeah. the, because the thing is, the, the, the eye will now shift. Yeah. You know, he had, enough other, he, he had his canaries down the mine. And those canaries now gone, <laughs> so it looks inevitable. But um, but that that's not because of everyone else. It's because of the way Mourinho is acting. And I think Kartik's right. You know that rant today was one of someone who feels like they probably should. Who almost thinks, you know what? I deserve to go. Yeah. I'm going to have to pretend that I don't, so they'll all believe it and print yeah. it in their papers. Yeah, he's trying. He's trying to control the story because he knows where it's going. Uh, it's been a weird weekend in the Premier League because we've had these two or three major stories to talk about, and it's taken up most of the show, but we do want to at least touch on the rest of the games from around the Premier League. Uh, first, let's go ahead and get caught up on the other leagues that we, we watch week to week in Europe. Uh, in France, as in most leagues that we follow, the big game was kicking off as we started recording. PSG was hosting Marseille. PSG are still undefeated atop the league, and they'll stay there regardless of the result in the Classique, but newly promoted Angers is in second place after their third win in four, a one nothing win over Bastia, where the winner was scored by a man with one of the the best names I've seen in European football. His name is Billy Cateo Pomphone. He's a French-born Loatian international who spent one season at Sion in Switzerland, but has spent most of his year, uh, most of his career in the second division of France. Uh, Cateo Pomphone. I, I love that. I think there are 16 letters in his last name. It's just good to see uh, new names come up. Uh, but when it, you say Pomphone, do you mean like Palm Phone? P P H O M. Okay, right. Then okay, phone. My yeah. I thought you were. I thought it was that P A L M P H O N. Yeah, that's just it's my. Made that, in, I mean, this made, that's a Samsung deal waiting to happen, isn't it? Exactly. Well, that's just my California accent coming out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but in a weekend of huge games, probably the biggest game this weekend was in uh, Spain. We've already alluded to it once. By the time we had hit record on the show, Real Madrid was already up one goal at the Calderon on uh, on Atletico. Karim Benzema had scored in the ninth minute. But there was another result of note in Spain. Uh, Lionel Messi injured with Barcelona for a couple months. Barcelona with a very difficult trip to the Sanchez Pizjuan. Um, Andres Iniesta. Esta also hurt, forcing Javier Mascherano into a midfield with Sergio Busquets, something you rarely see at Barcelona. The team played pretty well, but they lost 2-1 in Seville. Really good result for Unai Emery's team. Is that Emmer's a double team. pivot they're playing in the midfield? Now? No, they had actually oh, okay. they had actually pushed uh, Busquets up to where he's playing more like a Bastian Schweinsteiger, a shuttling type role, which was Bastion really... Bastian now or Bastian back then? Bastian, a hypothetical. Uh, okay. So, there, so there, you got the rare, uh, the rare sight of Busquets actually charging into the penalty area to uh, add another attacker. So it was very, it was very interesting. And um, they, they pulled it off quite well. It's just, it was a very good performance from Sevilla this weekend. Um, 
Also of note in Spain, Villarreal lost for the first time this season. They were still atop of the league when we uh, went to press today or went to record. Uh, they lost one to nothing at Levante after Bojan, Bojan Jokic was given his second yellow card in the 36th minute. Spain's down to two undefeated teams. Real Madrid, people know that. Celta Vigo, second place as we were going to record. Uh, gentlemen, the other thing that we usually do on every show is give our top fours. I'll go ahead and give mine first. Uh, top four on form. I've got City, 6-1 victory. Um, then I have Arsenal. I'm going by league form here in their last two league matches. Win at Leicester, very impressive win against Manchester United. Then I have Crystal Palace, and then, for lack of a better option, Manchester United. End of the season, this is the first time I have Chelsea outside of my top four at the end of the season. I have City, United, Arsenal, and Spurs. Really, Liverpool with Klopp. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really debated whether I actually put Crystal Palace fourth because... As you alluded to earlier in the show, Lawrence, you drop if you drop Chelsea out of that mix, if you're inclined to see them as not finishing in the top four, it becomes really, really open and, and honestly really exciting because you can also make a case for a team like West Ham based on the results. Um, Lawrence, let's go to you with your fours. Okay. Um, this for me is just, you know, so I, I almost leave it down to myself to sort of pick a, as we're making the show, I let Kartik shape my views. Um, but I'm going to say, I'm going to put City top just because, you know, the absolute thrashing of Newcastle, but there was inevitability about that. Um, I'm going to put um, Arsenal second. I'll put Crystal Palace like you did in there and then Southampton. But I, we'll taper the Southampton achievement by saying, you know, Chelsea. Yeah. Um, my top four coming in the season are Manchester City, Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool with their new manager. They're close enough. It can happen. Kartik, your fours. Okay, uh, this is league form only, remember. So I'm going one Spurs, two Palace, three Arsenal, four Manchester City. And then end of the season, we're going to go one City, two United, three Arsenal, four Spurs. I love how it's it's almost hard for you to put City in there because you're you, – you, there seems to be something where you have you have you watch this team so much you have doubts that you can't shake. Well, but they lost the last two league games. We're talking about league form only. Yeah, two, yeah. two league losses prior to this. So uh, Spurs are now unbeaten in several league games in a row. Uh, I want to say Spurs have not lost since the opening day. So they uh, seven seven games unbeaten. Hmm. Uh, let's quickly talk about the rest of the matches, Kartik. Let's go ahead and start with the result at the Etihad. 6-1 victory. The big takeaway from this is so many questions about Sergio Aguero's form, his fitness. Definitely put it to rest this weekend. Yeah, he certainly did. And I think uh, the other thing that we saw in this game that was that was real significant for Manchester City was the ability of, of Jesus Navas, again, to change a game uh, when he comes on. We've seen it many times. City fans, very impatient. Uh, they, they see his end product isn't, isn't quite there a lot of times. But he has an ability to take on players, draw corners, draw fouls, change games. He came on at halftime. The match was very open. The first half was a very even first half. Maybe Newcastle had a little bit better of the play. Second half, one-way traffic. A real quick note on Newcastle. Steve McLaren now has an international break to figure it out. I'm seeing signs in these last two games. I know they lost this game 6-1, but then the Chelsea game before that. I'm seeing signs that it might come together. Suspensions, injuries, uh, it really hurt them trying to coalesce this team. Uh, I'm not as panicky about Newcastle as I am about Villa or Sunderland at this point. Yeah, let's wait to see uh, how they look after getting three or four straight games with Mitrovic and the team. Um, Lawrence. Crystal Palace, 2 nothing victory at West Brom, uh, against West Bromwich Albion. It was at Selhurst Park. Mm. They're still in the top four. They're still yeah. pre- performing very consistently. Same style of game all the time. No flukes here. 
it's becoming much, much easier to believe in what Alan Pardew is doing as far as a team that can actually t- challenge for Europe, maybe even take advantage of Chelsea Swoon. Do you remember that Newcastle team a few years ago? Mm-hmm. Mm. Who, um, I don't remember the coach of that team, though. I don't think anyone does, um, <laughs> it, especially not Joe Kinnear. Although I believe Joe Kinnear couldn't actually remember half the team. So um, uh, what I would say about that is, I mean, that's that's the only tapering factor. Well, not, not the only one, but one of the few tapering factors here is, you know, if you take maybe one or two of those parts out, uh, it, like you could say with any side really in the Premier League this season, then things fall apart a little bit. But it was a fantastic performance, especially from the likes of Zaha. Balassi got the goal, but really the emphasis wasn't so much on him. Zaha was incredible down the wing. Um, and Kabai in the centre of the park, uh, a, a, another Palace fan, text me post game and said uh, he's graceful he's an adonis in the center of the park the only thing that he the, the the thing he said was i can't believe i'm typing this to you but i can't wait for connor wickham to come back hmm. and i was sort of confused by that but because if you don't you know if you don't watch a, a, a team too often uh for you know and you're watching from outside then you don't necessarily think about these individuals coming in but what i think with palace is he's right you know, if, if Glenn Murray had have stayed, but the only reason he didn't stay, by the way, was because he got offered a bigger contract, more money somewhere else, which isn't, and the Palace fans have no grudges about that. They understand why he would do that at this point in his career. But what they now think is, what if Wickham was fit or Murray was here? What more would we have? Because, hmm. you know, what, what if Shamak was fit, for instance? Hmm. So there are even more exciting no, times. The, I think a lot of the Palace team fans. is loaded. I mean, I, actually, I've gone over this with a couple of friends of mine. You look at Palace's bench, it, it's as strong as any team outside of the Arsenals, the, the Manchester United, and the Manchester Cities. It really is. Yeah. But, the, but these, these guys are very tactically intelligent fans and they, they know what they want their side to have. And I think that, you know, the weird thing is, you know, Arsenal maligning their big man in uh, Giroud, maybe. Um, whereas Palace fans are calling out for one, which is strange. Um, and you know, very often when lower league fans or, or fans that lower down the league do that, it sounds strange because generally it means we well, want some. Well, Sh- Shamak is a perfect example of that because when he went to Palace, he was very effective. Uh, now under multiple managers, he's hurt now, but uh, you saw a completely different utilization of, of the player and confidence than he had at Arsenal almost instantaneously yeah. when he when he went to South London. Yeah, I mean it makes sense. Kartik, one of the late games on Sunday. Swansea, 2-2 draw at home with Spurs. Spurs, like as you mentioned, another good result. Completely different team with Christian Eriksen. Healthy, however, Swansea continues their swoon from the plateau yeah. that we saw at the beginning of the season. Yeah, uh, first off on Spurs, delicious football today. They, they should have gotten all three points. Some great saves from Fabianski. And I really like what Pochettino is doing. I, I firmly believe they're going to finish in the top four this season. Whose expense that's at right now looks like Chelsea, but maybe it's at someone else's expense. But let's talk about Swansea. I think Leon Britton was such an influential player and in just keeping the ball moving and going side to side. Maybe there isn't as much of an emphasis on that in people's minds in England. The, the types of things Xavi did. Of course, Xavi's at an exceptional level, right? But that type of player in the midfield. He has a little bit of that in him, but he doesn't quite have Britain's uh, uh, ability to, to, to kind of just keep the ball moving and be very tidy with it and be in the right mm. position. Swansea's lacking that now. They've got in Sigurdsson and Shelby guys that are, that go forward well, but they, they're not necessarily covering space. They, don't, they give the ball away a lot. It's a very un-Swansea-like team, and, and obviously Britain survived through uh, Rodgers and Martinez and Sousa and, and, and Loudrup and all these managers, and, and Monk has faced them out. But they need that kind of player if they're going to play, play like Swansea. They, they look out of sorts. They were fortunate to get a draw today at home. 
I, I'm very worried about Swansea. I, I'm about as worried about them as any side outside of uh, uh, the, the teams we've mentioned, Sunderland and Villa. Mm-hmm. Speak, speaking of Sunderland, Lawrence, Sunderland, 2-2 draw at home to West Ham. Not a terrible result, but as we heard during the week, Dick Advocat, it was going to be his last game. He resigned on Sunday. So where does Sunderland go from here? Uh, to Big Sam. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they go to a reduced style of football. They probably go for a manager who... Um, uh, to be fair, it's not terrible. I mean, we saw the potential that Sunderland have to play some great football there. So it's not all doom and gloom, if you like. Um, I think, it, you know, basically where they go from here is they try and put 35 points together, maybe, and see if that's good enough to keep them up. Yeah. I don't, I just personally, I don't want another season with Sunderland in the Premier League. They need to go down. Really? They need to, I, yeah. I'm, I'm just tired. No. I'm just tired of this scenario playing out every year. Yeah, but I, I think they, they need to stay up in order for this to work. You, yeah. Well, I, 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 I hope they don't get Big Sam because they get Big Sam, they'll probably stay up. <laughs> so, I agree. So I weird agree we're talking like this. Yeah, I, I agree with Richard. They need to go at this point. I mean, every season we go through this, and their payroll is so bloated. They've been in the top ten uh, in wage bill. I haven't seen this season's yet, but the last three seasons, these three seasons where they've had these great escapes uh, all in a row under different managers, and then the manager gets sacked early in the following season or leaves, uh, they have had they've been in the top ten in, in wages in the Premier League all three of those seasons and have finished you know, basically 16th or 17th every year. It, it's it's time. If, if people want to continue to make the argument that the Premier League is the deepest top division in the world, they need to reconcile that with what we've seen from Sunderland because Sunderland, for the last three or four years, have consistently played bad football except for one run each year. And yeah, of course, that's going to be enough for you to stay up. But for you to do it year after year after year, it's it says something about the Premier League that that happens. Uh, Kartik, Villa, nil, Stoke, one. Second win in a row for Stoke. Reprieve for Mark Hughes. Looks like they might be on track. Tim Sherwood does not look like he has a formula that can keep Villa up. No, if Brendan Rodgers wants a job again quickly, he, he could maybe have one of these two jobs very soon. Because, uh, again, uh, now Stoke is getting results, but they're not playing the Stoke alone away the way Sparky wants them to play. They were very fortunate against Bournemouth last week. This week they were the better team, but they were playing just an awful, a team that's really not at a Premier League level at all. Uh, when we talk about this league getting better in the middle and, and, and some of the players that have come in from the continent. So a very, very poor performance from Villa. Uh, Stoke will take the points. I don't know that Rodgers wants either one of these jobs. I don't know that he wants to rush back into management. But uh, maybe Randy Lerner, in his attempts to sell the team, will realize bringing in a Rodgers uh, as a long-term solution and maybe giving him a transfer kitty in January will help him flip the club sooner. Who knows? But otherwise, why would I think Villa... Why, why would Rodgers yeah, want Rogers that? That's right. That's what I'm thinking. Maybe Rodgers doesn't yeah. want a job like this. But Villa are in bad, bad shape. And it's not it's not a reflection of Tim Sherwood. They just do not have the horses to stay up. Yeah. And as, as harsh as you and I were on Sunderland a moment ago, Kartik, the story is the same with Villa. It's every year, relegation battle, think you're going in a new direction... No, it's it's just not happening. Uh, Lawrence, two teams that we've been very high on throughout this season. Norwich, Leicester City. Leicester gets a 2-1 win. Very good result on the road. Yeah, um, a, a, another great result on the road. And um, I think that what Ranieri liked most was he was saying, I'm an old-style defender, so I like these kind of battles between between our guys and theirs. Um, and, I mean, maybe that's what's going to shape this side up so well, is that he he's, seems to be relishing this role within the Premier League. Um, you know, we expect him to be up there with those top managers and, you know, he built Chelsea. Um, but also, you know, the fact that then he went back to Italy and we kind of forgot about him for a little while. I think what he's doing with the English players, but also 
the likes of Shalup, who he pushed out from left back, and then um, I know Okazaki didn't have a great game, but you know the the fact that he is bringing in players like that, um, I, I, it it just makes this team so exciting for Leicester, and it gives their fans a really great um, identity to carry around the league, which before was actually quite a negative one. So I think they thrive off that. Um, and for, Nor- for Norwich, I don't think it's so terrible. You know, they played fantastically. I I, I think. Um, and you know they could they could have been better at the back, but I I still think there's enough there for them. Quick stat: uh, Yesterday, when I checked uh, the leading scorers in the Premier League at this time, four of the top five leading scorers have played in the Championship one of the last two seasons. Uh, the exception being Kunaguero. Hmm. So, and that includes two guys on Leicester, uh, Vardy and uh, and Mares. So. Uh, really uh, I- amazing how guys are coming up from the lower divisions and with proper coaching, they're, they're excelling. Callum Wilson being another guy, and of course he's out for six months, so he'll drop off that list. But uh, it speaks well to the depth of uh, strength of English football. One other result this weekend, Bournemouth-Watford, two teams that were in the championship last year, 1-1 draw there. Watford, with only seven goals allowed this year, one of five teams that shared the best defensive record in the league. Uh, it's international break coming up, so we're probably not going to have a show this coming Sunday. We'll probably do the same thing we did last international break. Wait for the results to come in, have a midweek show, and preview the next weekend's worth of action in the Premier League. But until then, for Lawrence McKenna, I'm Richard Farley. Kartik? Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley and is a production of WorldSoccerTalk.com. For more information on the show, check us out at WorldSoccerTalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at WorldSoccerTalk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at LawsCast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737. And I'm at Richard Farley. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.